Father, we thank you for your word, that it contains the words of eternal life. And we ask now that as we come before your word, would you reveal yourself to us? Would you show us Christ? Would you show us our own hearts? Um, And in our hearts, would you bring about understanding, bring about conviction, bring about humility, bring about transformation, Lord, that we may become more like Christ and that you would continue to do good work in our, in our hearts and in our lives, Lord. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. You know, my mom texted me this morning, one, two, three, one, two, three. You know, it's 12, <clears throat> 31, 23, the last day of the year. You know, my mom is very cute like that. Um, in fact, she keeps our family, <coughs> excuse me, family quite entertained. I'm just glad she's on a, a free, um, unlimited text plan. Otherwise, yeah. But it is the last day of the year, and um, you know we saved the best for last. No, just kidding. Um, th- this year, uh, uh, I-, I get to preach on this last Sunday, uh, partly because I think it's generally a quieter Sunday, and there's like, where can Pastor Jason do the least amount of damage? So. You know, they have me preach this Sunday. But we actually closed the church office this week, and uh, the, the paid staff got, to, got a well-deserved break and spent time with their families and vacation. So it worked out that one of the lay elders got to step in to preach this week. And usually this time of year, it's when we look back and reflect on, uh, you know, what's been going on, how, how the year has been. I don't know how your year has been, but for my family, it was a bit of a transition year. You know, my youngest uh, went off to college this year. Um, so you know, empty nesting, it's a pretty big life change, and it's glorious, by the way. Uh, but considering how crazy the past few years have been, in many ways, 2023 seemed almost routine and normal. I don't know if you kind of felt that way. And that's not a bad thing, right? After years of kind of being stretched emotionally and spiritually, um, it's good to just rest and relax a bit. And now most of us are probably looking ahead to the new year. Um, and what do most of us do? We, we make New Year's resolutions, right? And usually it revolves around like diet or exercise or reading your Bible more. Um, and we know the routine, right? The first week goes really well, right? Second week, we're maybe doing okay. By, by February, um, most of us, you know, are kind of already behind the eight ball. By March, you know, we're like, who even comes up with New Year's resolutions? These are just so dumb, right? And we have self-loathing. Um, why can't I be more disciplined? Why is it hard to do just one simple thing every day? Why am I such a terrible person? And of course, by the time next January rolls around, we just do it all over again, right? And do your Christian walks sometimes feel like this? You know, you tell yourself, I'm just gonna buckle down and uh, work on my prayer life. I'm gonna come up with prayer cards and a prayer journal and use a prayer app, or I'm gonna just pray with my wife every night or have weekly family devotions, or I'm just gonna read my whole Bible this year. Um, or maybe we, we hear this great message and decide, you know, I'm going to evangelize each of my coworkers in my whole neighborhood this year. Or uh, I'm, I'm just gonna be just this encouraging and kind and nice person every day. And we all resolve to do something. Um, and none of these things are bad things, but how often do we fail? Do we fall short by February, right? Uh, what happens when we don't finish what we set out to do? Do we start getting down on ourselves? Do we say, what is wrong with me? What kind of Christian 
am I? You know, I need just to try harder, be more disciplined. You know, I, I think we've all felt this, right? The, the pressure to keep doing and serving, the weight of spiritual disciplines, you know, the guilt and despondency when we fail. But one of the blessings of the gospel message is that life doesn't have to be and is no way meant to be like this. In fact, we ought to do so many of these things, but with the gospel, we do so with this underlying and ongoing sense of joy and peace. So this morning, we're turning our attention back to the book of Galatians, and we're gonna look at this idea of how the gospel underlies all that we do. And we took a six-week break during the Advent season. It reminds me of what happens when I watch streaming shows. How many of you guys like watch Netflix and different shows? Now, to be clear, I don't mean K-dramas. You know, my wife watches those from time to time. I gave it a try, and I'm sorry, I, I just can't. Um, you know, and I know I've lost like 90% of you now. But I, I particularly enjoy like a good mystery or a good sci-fi or heist. So after first service, of course, someone comes up to me and tells me, you know, K-dramas have a lot of those things, so <laughs> I guess I need to check it out. Um, but what can be hard for me is when there's too much time between seasons. You know, the first season ends, and then it's like 12 months before the next season starts. And as I'm getting older, my brain is either getting full or getting leaky. I just can't remember all the things that happened in season one. Now, as for Galatians, you probably remember a bit about being saved by faith, and you remember you know, some of the young pastors were like calling each other out, you know, so immature. But <laughs> the details and flow of what's happening may have gotten a little fuzzy. Now, fortunately, for casual TV viewers like me, these shows always give you like a recap, right? Before season two, episode one, let's give you a rundown of what happened in the first season. So for the sake of all of you who don't have steel traps for a brain, I'm gonna give you a quick recap of Galatians season one before we start season two, okay? So as Galatians season one unfolded, the apostle Paul, he's not happy, right? In fact, he's a bit ticked off. He gives this quick, perfunctory greeting, and then chapter one, verse six, six verses in, I am astonished that you are so quickly, quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And if you think I'm kind of overreading this, he later, he calls the Galatians foolish. He says that those who are preaching a false gospel should be accursed, anathema, damned. And that those who insist on circumcision should just go ahead and mutilate themselves. You know, yikes, you know, what, what's gotten Paul so riled up? You see, the Galatian church was a mix of Jewish and Gentile converts, but what happened was that some strict Jews, some Judaizers had come by and told the church that they, they needed to be circumcised and follow the Jewish law in order to be true Christians. They were adding to the gospel. On top of that, they were also spreading lies about Paul, saying that he wasn't even really a true apostle. So the first thing Paul sets out to do is to defend his apostleship. He explains that the gospel came to him directly through revelation of Jesus Christ. He then spent three years in Arabia. Most likely he was studying and learning scripture. 14 years later, he came to Jerusalem where he meets the other apostles who then affirm his understanding of the gospel as well as his apostleship. Now, Paul, he probably, he didn't want to do this. He wanted to spend time talking about himself, but he felt this was important to establish his credentials because he didn't want people doubting him or more importantly, the message he was going to deliver uh, in this letter. 
And before he gets to the meat of the epistle, Paul describes this interesting run-in he has in with the apostle Peter. You see, Peter, if you remember, he kind of has a bit of a history of being like a coward. And because of pressure from the Judaizers, he was wrongly separating himself from the Gentile believers. He was acting like a hypocrite, endorsing a gospel that required following these Jewish regulations. Paul, never you know, afraid to speak his mind, he directly rebukes Peter on this. Um, and Peter, he wasn't just any apostle, he was the leader of the apostles. Paul then gets to his main purpose, that we are saved by grace alone. That God, by his amazing grace, has saved us. And if we try to do anything to add to that, like our own efforts, then it's no longer the gospel. And Paul, he's masterful. He's like this really good lawyer who presents each piece of evidence so that in the end, you have no doubt on this conclusion. And he uses a series of arguments. In the first part of chapter three, Paul starts off with what I would call like a personal argument. Galatians 3.2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's saying, think about it, guys. When, when you became believers, did you do it by following the law? Or did you simply just hear the good news and you believed? And he goes on, then why are you acting like fools and trying to grow your faith through works? And a lot of us, we probably think this way, don't we? You know, our salvation is like this bike that God pushes to get us going, then we have to pedal to keep, to keep the bike moving. But Paul says, no, even our sanctification is by grace. In the middle section of chapter three, Paul uses a different tactic and argues from scripture. He says, look at back at the Old Testament. Deuteronomy tells us that we have all failed to keep God's law. Habakkuk, the righteous are saved by faith. And Leviticus, the law saves only if you can follow it perfectly. Paul in essence is saying, we cannot be saved by trying to follow the law. It's impossible. And you know how a good recap highlights the things you need to know as we start the new season? Well, Paul kind of does this for us. He tells us he was saved by grace. You know, it was all by grace. But he says there's this problem, we're adding works. You know, and the account of Peter kind of highlights that. And then he says, hey, based on your experience of scripture, again, we're saved by grace. Now, as streaming sites are airing more content from other countries, not just like Korea, but other countries, I really appreciate how other countries kind of tell stories. You know, the American way is to end each episode or season with this over-the-top, massive cliffhanger, right? But I've noticed a lot of European shows are a little slower paced. There's more character development, less like ridiculousness, you know, in the end. Now, I'm kind of been carrying this TV show analogy a little far. You know, obviously Paul didn't write Galatians with seasons in mind, right? And at Lighthouse, we just happened to have Advent in between in the middle of Galatians 3. Um, but here, clearly, Paul, he's not like American or European. You know, he doesn't want to leave us on some crazy cliffhanger, like, oh no, are we going to be saved? Um, and he's not subtle either. He's really trying to hammer this point. Salvation is by grace alone. It's not by any human effort. Which brings us to today's passage, Galatians 3, 15 to 18. If you have your Bibles, you can open up. I think in the handout, it might say Galatians 5, but we're actually still in Galatians 3. And Paul now turns to the argument of logic. You know, you know God, he's a God of order. So Christianity always has this logical flow. And so we can start season two. 
Um, over the next few weeks, we'll continue through Galatians, and you'll see Paul continues to use different arguments. He'll look at history, he'll argue from sentiment, he'll argue from allegory to really rest his case. But today, let's look at Galatians 3, 15 to 18. This is God's word. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no longer, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So here's Paul's logic. He says, even with a man-made covenant, once it's agreed upon, no one can change it or void it. Now God made a covenant or promise to Abraham that through Abraham's offspring, there would be salvation. And God has fulfilled that promise in Jesus. God made a promise and he kept it. Now the law, the Mosaic law, that the Jews are now busy trying to follow and add on to the gospel, that came 430 years after God's promise to Abraham. Or Moses came centuries after Abraham. So this law came about so much later, it doesn't annul the covenant or make the promise void. Because if we let salvation come through the law and following the law, then God's promise to save through faith is no longer valid. That makes a lot of sense, right? That's a good argument. There's this promise of salvation, later on comes the law, but the promise still holds. So the key idea for us this morning, God's promise to save us God promises to save us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, while the law guides us to faithful living. So let's take a closer look at these ideas to see how it might relate to us today. So the first idea is the promise. So Paul starts his argument with the, pro the premise that when we have a covenant, once it's agreed upon, no one can change it or get rid of it. Now for many of us, one of the biggest covenants that we, or contracts that we may sign our lives is when we buy a house, right? We sign our name and basically we agree to pay a whole lot of money every month for a whole lot of decades. And we agree to fix every pipe break, every wall crack, every roof leak forever and ever, right? And once we sign it, there's no turning back. I mean, there are like contingencies and inspections and all that, but you get the idea. And to the early Christian in Paul's time, um, this idea that covenants could not be broken was pretty well understood. And the point here is that even when we as man, we agree to a covenant, how much more will God agree and not change that covenant? And you'll notice as Paul's working through this passage, he changes terms. Instead of calling God's agreement with Abraham a covenant, Paul uses the word promise. Because this is really what went down when God met Abraham in Genesis 15. You know, God promised Abraham blessings. He said, I will give you land, offspring, a multitude of nations, and out of these people will come a savior, will come Jesus. And then this weird ritual takes place. I don't know if you guys remember this. You know, God tells Abraham to gather a bunch of animals and to cut them in half, right? And then he lays them down on the ground. And the custom then was that each party would walk through these dead animals. And basically they're saying, if I break this covenant, let me be like one of these animals. 
But in this case, only God passes between the animals. Abraham does nothing. In fact, he's sleeping through most of this. The covenant, in this case, is a one-sided promise. You know, God promises to save us. And Abraham here, he's the prototype for all of us. In Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. And this ties back to today's passage, Galatians 3, 16. Abraham believed in the Lord's promise that from his offspring would come a savior. You know, Abraham didn't know exactly who that savior would be, but today we know that it's Jesus who fulfilled that promise. So in the same way, if we believe, God counts it to us as righteousness. Now, why did Paul have to explain that a covenant, a promise cannot be annulled? It wasn't that a given. It's because that's kind of what happened when the law came along. And this brings us to the second point, the law. Now, you kind of have to feel for these Judaizers. You know, they grew up learning the Mosaic law. They probably went to Sabbath school. They memorized scripture. They lived these moral upright lives. They truly, obey, truly believed that obeying laws and regulations were vital to their standing before God. I mean, these were given to them by Moses himself, right? Um, one of the greatest le- leaders of Israel. And in this covenant, God gave his people a summary of how they were to obey him. He gave them the Ten Commandments and over 600 uh, rules and regulations that cover different aspects of life, worship, sacrifices, justice, civil matters, and so on. And as Israelites followed and lived by these, they would receive protection and receive blessing. And through the centuries, the covenant was symbolized and renewed through different rituals and sacrifices and offerings and celebrations like the Passover and Yom Kippur. So every good Jew knew the law, commemorated the law, and tried to live by the law. So you can see how they concluded that the Abrahamic covenant promised blessing and offspring And the Mosaic Covenant was kind of added on to this, right? These are the laws and regulations that we should follow to receive those blessings. It kind of makes sense. But Paul is saying, no, a promise is a promise. Once you add in obedience to the law as a condition for salvation, then the promise to save us by faith is null and void. The law negates the promise. So then you might ask, what is the law for? You know, we'll get into more of this in the next few sections of Galatians, but a quick summary. The law, or again, the Mosaic law, is found in the first five books of the Bible. God gave Moses a set of moral principles. He says, this is how we are to live individually, day by day. He says, this is how we're to live in harmony with one another through the civil and criminal codes. And this is how we're to worship and serve God with these religious rituals. So it's kind of the moral law, the judicial law, the ceremonial law. If you have a chance, look through Romans 7, and Paul tells us more about the purpose of the law. He gives us three quick ideas. One, the law, it reveals sin. So it gives us a standard of right and wrong, and now we know what a sin is, what a transgression against God is. Two, it provokes sin. You know, once we know what is right and wrong, then the natural rebelliousness within each of us declares we want to be independent from God, right? And we go against those regulations. And then three, it reveals our need for a savior. You know, if we were somehow to perfectly follow God's law, then we'd be righteous, but no one can do that. None of us have been able to do that. We've all failed to follow God's law. 
So the law, it actually can't save any of us. It actually enslaves us. It reveals that we are all helpless sinners. The law leaves us under a curse, which is really the all-time biggest cliffhanger, right? If we can't keep the law to save ourselves, then what? The answer, of course, is found in Jesus. He is the promise and comes to show us how the law relates to the promise. So Jesus tells us in Matthew 5.17, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not, come to, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets because everything in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, the seed of Abraham. The law showed us none of us are holy. We're all sinners. We need salvation. And the prophets pointed to a savior to come. And Jesus fulfilled all of that. You know, Jesus goes on to further fulfill the law by teaching us and showing us that when it comes to the law, it's, just, it's not about the letter of the law, but it's really all about the spirit of the law. You see, it's not just a bunch of thou shall and thou shall nots. Jesus showed us that beyond just strict legalistic observance, there's a deeper meaning of the law. So it's not just do not murder, but it's really about the anger in your heart. You know, are you loving others? It's not just do not commit adultery, but it's about the lust in our hearts. Are we living with purity? So the law, it, it focused on outward behavior, but Jesus is telling us that it's not about the outside, but it's what's going on inside. Are our hearts acting out of love, out of mercy, out of forgiveness, compassion, justice, righteousness? That's what the spirit of the law is teaching. And Jesus summarizes all of this law so perfectly in two heart commands, love God, love others. So what are we then to make of the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, the promise and the law? You know, are they like in opposition? Does one replace the other? No, at the heart of both covenants is actually the same premise. We are saved and live by faith. See, the Abrahamic covenant was God's promise that he would save us by believing that he would provide a savior. The Mosaic covenant, you know, on one hand gives us guidelines for holy living, but at the same time showed us that without faith, we have no hope of trying to live these guidelines out. In both cases, we must walk by faith. And this brings us to our third point, our last point, faith. You know, so God's promise to save us by grace, it, it's not just for justification. I hope you're seeing that it's also for our sanctification, that he's going to grow us to make us more like Christ as well as for our perfection, he's gonna finish this good work. So from the moment we're saved, it's God's grace at work in us. The problem here is that our, our mindsets, we don't like this. You know, For all of us, we've been taught that you need to earn and work for rewards, for recognition, for success. You know, what do we tell little Johnny when he learns to walk, tie his shoe, scores his first goal? We say, good job, you did it. You know, we might give him a little reward. This work mindset, it's just so ingrained in us. You know, we, we've been taught to trust in what we do, what we've earned. The world says, if you just try hard enough, you will achieve all of your dreams. You think of Tiger, Kobe, Elon Musk. They're all talented, but they all worked harder than everyone else. Now, I grew up in an immigrant family, and many of you can probably relate to this. You have the notion that studying hard and good grades were the ticket to success, right? When my kids uh, got to high school or playing sports, I met quite a few families. I thought all families thought that way, but they were more like, if you practice hard enough and get an athletic scholarship, 
that'll bring success, right? But in the end, it's the same path of doing something for ourselves, to help ourselves. And I think this mindset carries over to even the bigger issues, salvation, redemption from sin, eternal life. Every other religion, every false worldview, every other belief system and ism out there ultimately comes back to human effort. If you sin, then you do this ritual for atonement. If you just do such a good work or sacrament, uh, then you'll earn reward, you'll merit favor from your supreme being, from God. You see, self-justification is the deepest impulse in the fallen human heart. Theologian Gerard Ford explains, the problem lies in the fact that the old being will not and cannot hear gospel no matter what one says. The old being will turn whatever one says into law. And this is what makes Christianity different from every other religion. Christianity is based on grace. Are simply believing in the finished work of Christ on the cross, that he died for our sins once and for all. Martin Luther said that justification by faith is the most principal and special article of Christian doctrine. You know, that's so true. Without this doctrine, Christianity is just another religion, an endless effort to get right with God through self-discipline and ritual. Now, for the Christian... This works mindset, I think it typically sets in in the area of sanctification, right, as we're trying to grow ourselves. Galatians 3.3, again, Paul here is talking to believers, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you you now being perfected by the the flesh? You You believed to become a Christian, but why are you now being perfected or sanctified, growing by the flesh, by your works, by trying to follow the law? Sometimes it seems like even the church, even the Bible tells us to work harder, you know, live obediently, do your quiet time, serve more, give more, witness more, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Faith without works is dead. You know, aren't we all guilty of this type of thinking? You know, we think a good quiet time kind of keeps God happy with us. We think serving more makes me a little more righteous. When I mess up, when I fall into the habitual sin, I need to find absolution through self-denial, through self-discipline. I need to somehow get back right with God. But Paul tells us, no, don't walk by the flesh, trusting in your own works, but rather by the spirit, trusting that God is doing good work in you. So what about the law then? How does that fit into all this, into our lives now? Well, today, today, Jesus has fulfilled the law, so we no longer follow the ceremonies and rituals and justice justice practices of the Mosaic law. And we're not like building altars in our backyard and sacrificing rodents, right? There are a few skunks in my neighborhood I would love to offer up to God. And we're not like stoning people to death, right? That's because on the cross, Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice and has brought justice for all sins, for our sins. But we're still called to follow the moral aspects of the law. You know, the law is not our means of sanctification, but it can act as our guide. It gives us a picture of what holy living should look like, along with all the teachings of Scripture. We understand what is right and wrong. We learn wisdom so that we can make the best choices for daily living. And the law also points us to a holy and perfect God who wants what's best for us. You know, God's ways are always better. The way of the sinner 
is always hard. So even with the promise in place that God is doing good work, we still have to do our part. And Philippians 2 tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. So when it comes to working out our salvation, I think we can fall into two camps. One is the law follower who works because he must continue to earn favor, maintain his standing before God. On the other camp, there's the grace-oriented believer who works because God is working in his heart and desires to love God and love others. So at the risk of overextending my, my bicycle analogy, you know, God saves us, he gets the bike moving, right? But the law follower thinks he needs to keep pedaling this bike and it's just this uphill climb, right? For the grace-oriented believer, we understand that we actually do do some pedaling. We have to cooperate and, and be obedient, but it's really a downhill journey, right? God promises he's going to get us to the finish line. And then to further extend this already somewhat tenuous analogy, for many of us, life can seem like a series of hills and valleys, right? There are times where we are living just kind of out of duty, but other times we're really, we're letting God's grace and love flow through us. Now, if you were to examine the law follower and the grace-oriented person, look at their lives, the choices they make, the works, at first glance, it may seem very similar. You, can, you might not be able to tell the difference. You know, both might be leading small group, reading their Bibles every day, giving regularly uh, to ministries. But when we look deeper, there are key differences. You know, there's a saying, I think it's from maybe like the 1950s. It says, I'm holy because I don't drink, cuss, or chew, or go with girls that do. Kind of funny. But I think it really encapsulates the mindset of the law follower well. My holiness, my standing depends on the things I do and things I don't do. The heart is one of self-righteousness. And don't get me wrong, they want to be a good Christian, they want to live rightly, but they go about it all wrong. It boils down to motivation, right? The heart desire that divides the two camps. The law follower does works because he has to. The grace-oriented believer does works because he wants to. For the law follower, the underlying belief is that good works leads to faith, while the grace-oriented understands that faith leads to good works. For the law follower, then, when works becomes the grounds for their Christian growth, what results is religion, legalism, duty, a list of do's and don'ts. A good Christian must, and you fill in the blank. And out of this attitude flows an ongoing anxiety over not doing enough. There's inner turmoil, striving always to measure up. There's guilt from inevitable failure. There's pride of having done more than the next guy. Or there's a judgmental attitude toward those who haven't met the life standards that the law follower has set up in his mind. There might even be doubts about one standing before God. You know, has your serving ever felt like duty? You know, have you ever approached your devotional with a check-the-box-for-the-day mentality? Do you strive and strive and wear your busyness as a badge of honor, as a declaration of your righteousness? Have you ever looked down on someone because of the way they raised their kids or the kind of car they bought? So much of this stems not just from a wrong view of the law, but more so from an anemic view of God's promise, of his grace, of his love, his power flowing and working in us. Now for the grace-oriented believer, you know, rather than duty, works becomes a joyful opportunity to love God 
and love others. Every trial, every difficulty, it can be reframed as an opportunity to trust in God more and point others to Jesus. Your works, it's not even the right word anymore. It's faithful living. It's spiritual worship. It's acts of service. These better describe that daily call to obedience. And what results here then is peace. It's confidence in what they do because we know God is working for his good pleasure. We don't feel like we have to do everything. We don't come down on ourselves unnecessarily when we fall short in our service. Our devotional times become these authentic times where we're just walking with God, we're laying out our complaints, our laments, we're sharing our hurts and our confusion. Underlying, that, underlying all that, there's this peace, knowing God is working. If we miss a quiet time, it's okay. You know, and we can rest. We're not busy comparing ourselves with what others are doing. We're not wrestling with guilt and anxiety over failures, but trust that God will give us grace for this new day, both to seize the opportunities set before us and simply just to walk and rejoice with him, our Father. Is that you? Is that what you want? You know that God has blessed and, and has eternal purpose in every interaction you have, every conflict, all your little day-to-day decisions, all your opportunities to walk with and do life with others. This is his grace working to use you and to grow you. You are part of his plan, right? If we allow that truth to marinate in our hearts, to stir our souls, our service will never be one of obligation, but rather we become willing and eager and happy to be part of God's plan. You know, when I started 2023, one of my resolutions was to simply just rest in God more. If you know me, I'm a pretty high capacity, juggle lots of balls, spin lots of plates kind of guy. And, and you know what's hard for me? When I have nothing to do. I, I've lived the kind of life where literally every day I have a task to accomplish, a project to work on, a teaching to prepare, a meeting to lead. I don't say this to boast. This is kind of how God's wired me and the life he, he's given me. So what does God, in his wisdom and humor, do to teach me to rest in him? He puts me on a sabbatical, right? The first six weeks of the year, I was on sabbatical, so I was not to teach or lead or meet or counsel, nothing. And it was really weird and hard at first. You know, I got really antsy, feeling like I need to do something. I felt like I was wasting precious moments loafing around. Efficiency can definitely be one of my idols. You know, I've needed to repent so many times over slow, clueless drivers in front of me. You can ask my kids. But slowly, God was working in my heart. It's okay to rest, restore, refresh. You know, I learned to enjoy days just communing with God, hanging out with the family, having no agenda and no plan. And for me, serving, it never really felt like a burden or stressful. It was more this need to always be doing something, to not waste time. And yes, there's value in stewarding my time well, but God builds in rest. He wants us to take a regular Sabbath day to slow down and just enjoy him. The danger is when the doing takes place of the relationship with God. That when I don't slow down and rest in the Lord, I'm operating on my own strength. Sabbath shows us that our rest should be meaningful. You know, when the pastors, we, we all take turns taking sabbaticals. When we come back from our sabbatical, we all realize, wow, 
they didn't need me. You know? In fact, the church did really well without me. I think when Pastor Gavin just came back, the church grew. He's like, I probably should take another sabbatical. You know, we realize God has got this. Um, and that's what meaningful rest should look like. It should point us back to God. As I'm getting older, I'm learning more and more what good balance between serving at Lighthouse, between work, family, friends, having fun, what that good balance should look like. And so much of it revolves around seeing each day as a gift from God, an opportunity to serve and love others in whatever way that day presents. It might be just grabbing a cup of coffee. It might be sharing a favorite 80s movies with my kids, working on a sermon. You know, this rhythm develops where ministry, fellowship, hanging out, even work are all just simply blessed ways to live out my faith for God. Now, some of you are like, I'm not sure I can relate. I really feel no guilt at all when I loaf around and have nothing to do all day. And for each of us, we probably struggle in different ways with how faithful living should look like in our lives. You know, some maybe struggle with a bit of a legalistic bent. Others maybe enjoy their Christian freedom a little too much. So as you think ahead for 2024, you may be trying to come up with some personal resolutions. You know, for me, maybe I need to loaf around more, watch more K-dramas, we'll see. My guess is that most of us can probably be served well by evaluating the balance and rhythms of our daily lives. You know, are we wisely and actively and intentionally living out our faith while resting in the promise that God is doing a good work in and through us? You know, it's amazing, even these past few days, God is just working all these little ways in my life. I've been reading through David Paulson's uh, Daily Devotional, that kind of lime green book some of you have read. I was kind of going through it this year. A couple days ago, on the 29th, I was working through the passage, and the devotional was on Sabbath rest. I was like, wow, that's perfect. Helps me really meditate on what that looks like. Uh, this morning, Alessandro read from Lamentations, New Mercies, every morning. I didn't know he was going to read that. December 31st, David Paulson's uh, uh, devotional, I'm going to read this to you to close. Our Father loves us with mercies new every morning. He is good and he does good. He has chosen to love us. He says, you are mine, so take heart. I will complete what I have begun. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to daily find joy and rest and assurance in your promise that by your grace, you are doing that good work that you have begun in our lives. Help us to wisely and lovingly work out our salvation with much fear and trembling, for it is you who is doing this good work for your good pleasure. And what joy is it for us to be in your will, to be in your pleasure? So we ask for enough grace, for new mercy each, each morning, that we can take what, what you have set out before us, that we can love and serve in the unique and special ways you have called each of us while we rest in you, Lord. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.